0: So joining me today is Rosalie Mass Taylor, who has an amazing story. She's a pilot wife. Her husband formerly was in law enforcement. And during that time in law enforcement, his canine dog, um, I won't say got loose. You'll have to listen to the podcast to hear what happened, but actually got a hold of their four and a half year old child and damaged his leg so severely it had to be amputated. But as sad as that is, what you're going to hear today is that story of faith and hope and recovery and sticking together as a team and turning what could be one of the most horrible things of your life into an opportunity to grow as a family and certainly inspire others. Welcome to the Pilot Wife Podcast, your ongoing checklist for navigating your first class life as a pilot wife and aviation family. I'm your co-captain, Jackie Elmer. I've been a pilot wife for over three decades and I cannot imagine any other lifestyle. Yes, there's no doubt it's a mix of turbulence and blue skies, but what life isn't? I'm here to bring you the best that the aviation life has to offer. If you have a topic suggestion or a story to share on the show, details are at the end. And if you want the pilot wife survival guide and checklist, go to pilotwifechecklist.com. Now, stow your baggage, strap in, and let's unpack the Pilot Wife life. So as I mentioned today on the show, we have Rosalie Mass Taylor, and she has an awesome story to share with you. It's inspiring. Um, it's, It's sad. It's uplifting. It's all the different things that you can imagine with emotion rolled into one. So Rosalie, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me, Jackie. I really appreciate
1: it. I'm excited to be here to talk with you.
0: Yeah. Well, I just, um, I've followed you on Instagram. I've read a lot of your story. I've listened to some of your podcasts and I'm just um, really thrilled personally to have the opportunity to ask you questions and to kind of unpack it. And as I mentioned before, you know, we have a lot to unpack. So let's just start mm-hmm. with your current status as a pilot wife, and mm-hmm. then we're going to kind of backtrack to how you landed here, pun intended, like <laughs> aviation terminology, <laughs> and then your journey so far. So tell us a little bit about your background. Um, I think your husband was in law enforcement first, just kind of take us back and share some of the backstory.
1: Yeah. So, um, so first of all, I'm, I'm a stay at home mom and I have a lot of Side projects and passions. I know they call them like passion projects, but um, I I teach music on the side, and then I'm writing a book, and so and then my husband goes to work full time, and he is currently managing a flight school for AeroGuard, and he started flight school in 2018, and then he finished in 2019, and then right away, you know, look for those typical. Uh, Pilot jobs that you get right out of school. And for about six weeks, he was a CFI in Arizona for AeroGuard. And then they bumped him up to a manager from there. And then about a year later, they said, Hey, we have a spot open in Texas to manage the whole flight school there. And we're like, Yeah, let's go to Texas. And my husband wanted out of the desert really bad. I loved Arizona, I think it's beautiful. He just could not stand the heat. Um, And so we felt like Texas would be a better place for us um, for many reasons. And so we came out to Texas actually the same exact week the pandemic hit. So literally came here um, a little scared to death because we didn't know what life was going to look like Um, in many forms. um, We had to get rid of all of our food to travel. And so we're like, what what are we going to do? And so we moved here when the pandemic hit. And we've been here, gosh, this month will be two years um, since we came here to Texas, since he, he's been managing this this flight school, which means the pandemic has been here for two years now, <laughs> which we're always gauge it like that. Like, oh, it's been this long since the pandemic hit.
0: <laughs> I know it's kind of interesting. I was started to say the word funny, but not in a funny sense. But for a long time in aviation, especially, it was like that post 9-11.
2: Yes. Was,
0: you know, and now that's. Gone, and I wonder that about the pandemic. Like, when when will we stop saying that on a regular basis? Yeah, something that will always be with us, and certainly anyone alive during that time will always kind of be able to relate back to. But it's like, oh, I'm so ready for that to be out of our ongoing conversation. Yeah, yeah. So it's funny. I live in Scottsdale, so I live in the desert. Oh,
1: okay. I it's so pretty there. I love it. It is
0: so pretty here, but it's not for everybody. And it's funny. I lived here. I lived in Phoenix. And then we moved to California after 9-11 with my husband's airline job and then just came back here five years ago. And it's kind of funny. I have a whole new appreciation for the desert and even the heat now. But the key, of course, is that every three weeks in the summer, I just get out of town.
1: If I have something
0: planned, even if it's the weekend, it's like, okay, I have something to look forward to. So it's kind of fun. Yeah. 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 Okay. So um, tell us a little bit about your family got quite a story uh, with your son Hunter, and that's really what we're most specifically talking about today. So talk to us about your family, Hunter, and what led us here.
1: Yeah. So um, my husband joined law enforcement when he was 22. His dad was a police officer and he didn't grow up wanting to pursue it, but then we got married and was like, okay, um, I got to get serious about having a career. And You know, looked at many different careers, and law enforcement was definitely a calling for him, um, one that he loved and just put his heart and soul into. And so that was at 22. um, We got married in 06, so about 07, 2007, he became a police officer. In 2015, sorry, 2014, he um, was promoted to be on the canine unit, and so he brought. Home a canine, a police canine, and um, there were very strict rules with this dog. He was not a family dog, he was a working dog. There are different types of canines, whether they just are used for drugs or bombs or in airports. I know we all know that as as we travel through airports, but this one was specifically trained to bite, and he would also was um, a drug dog as well, and so it was very um very strict and hard and fast rules with this dog we were not touch him to be around him um a year after we had the dog i went and ran an errand and my husband had just come home from boot camp um they run a boot camp out of their city and he was just absolutely exhausted but i'm like let me just leave hunter here i'm going to be right back i took my toddler with me at the time um and while I was gone, I get a phone call that said, Django's bit, Hunter, get home right away. And, um, I just thought, okay, he probably just needs stitches. It's probably no big deal because nothing bad happens to our children. Right. You know, we, not us, <laughs> right, right. That's not going to happen to us. It's, it can't be that big of a deal. And Michael was so calm. He didn't seem like nonchalant by any means, but he was just very calm. Like this happened, get home right away. Okay. And I'm like, well, what hospital do I need to go to? Are you guys going to the hospital? He's like, let me call you back. So after like, he called me back, but then it was really short. He called me back one more time. And then I hear people in the background and I was like, who are you talking to? Like, who is there? And he's like, Rosie, I'm talking to the paramedics. And I'm like, why are there paramedics there? And then he's, I hear him heard him say to them, where are you landing the bird? And that's when I knew they were bringing in a helicopter to lifeline him to a hospital. And that's when it all came crashing down. Um, when I knew that his life was in danger and that it wasn't just a small bite. And I rushed to the airport as soon as I could, I got there just in time to get on the helicopter and make it to the hospital.
0: So what, what did happen? What, what was it exactly that led to Hunter being with the dog Mm -hmm. and that happening?
1: If only we knew. (laughs) Um, so unfortunately, um, Michael, you know, like I said, he'd be gone all weekend. He was just exhausted. He wanted to get in the shower right away. He probably hadn't taken a good shower for a few days. So Hunter was four years old at the time. Actually, he was over four and a half. Um, very capable of turning on the TV and watching cartoons. It's like, here, just turn something on. I'm going to go take a quick shower. So Michael went and gone in the shower and I guess he didn't, he didn't realize that I was gone. And so he went looking for me and for some very odd reason, which we didn't have a big backyard at the time. We did not spend a lot of time out there. It wasn't a backyard that was like super kid-friendly. We didn't have like patio furniture out there. It was just one of the backyards we just did not use. But for some reason, he was like, well, let me go out in the backyard and look for my mom. And the dog was out at the time because he had been cooped up all weekend. So Michael let the dog out, went up to the shower, and Hunter went out and the dog attacked. And we have no clue why. And um, and it was uh, it was pretty severe because those dogs are trained to bite and not let go. Those dogs have so much drive to just get something in their mouth and unless they are like unless their handlers around or it's like something really big, they just will not let go. And even if they're handlers around, sometimes those dogs are just very hard to get off of a bite. And that's what they're used for. And um but unfortunately my leg son, my son's leg was in that dog's mouth for quite some time. The neighbors heard him screaming. Um, but they were an older couple, so they just called nine one one while he was back there getting attacked. And then they went and got someone um, from down the street because no one could get a
2: hold of Michael. He was in the shower.
0: And then what happened? I mean, I'm probably Michael got out of the shower and realized,
2: yeah. So he
1: came out and he heard banging on the door, and all he could hear was a kid, a dog, and he knew right away that you know what had happened because he knew Django was out. So he ran downstairs, ran to the backyard. And that point a neighbor had broken through our fence and got the dog off of Hunter. And um and he was like a retired Navy, like a big, big guy. And I think he just, with all of his adrenaline and force, pried the jaw off of Hunter's leg and was pinning the dog down. And um at that point, Michael got down there, threw Django in his kennel. And then um, I think the parent. I don't know how long I was. The timeline of it, of course, is a little hairy. I wasn't there. So sure. Yeah.
0: So so then what happened? He got to the hospital. You met them there. Mm -hmm. And
1: yeah, so we get to the hospital. And even then I was like, this probably isn't really bad. Like he get him in a cast, get him in surgery. And we're going to walk out of this hospital. It's going to be fine. And, um, so, but of course, you know, there's that panic of like, okay, is anything else wrong? How bad is it? His face was like scuffed up because, you know, the dog had him and he was just trying to crawl away from the dog. So he had like a bloody lip and it was definitely when I got to Hunter, um, just very, very disturbing to see. Um, so the intern, uh, like for the surgeons came to me with like the consent form. And he was just spouting out all this stuff. I'm like, okay, whatever, whatever, like just get my son into surgery, fix his bone and let us go home. And so he's reading all these things and I'm just nodding my head. And then he goes, and then if it comes down to it, we're going to have to amputate his leg. And that was, I was like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? And um. Once I heard that, that's when, once again, it just all came crashing down. I almost passed out. They definitely supported me. They brought me a chair. And I just remember sitting there, I signed my name and I just sat there and like, there was someone there with me who I didn't know. It was actually the chief's wife who lived, didn't live far from the hospital. And she, as soon as he, she heard the news, she came rushing to the hospital. And, um, and I just remember her being like, do you need something? Do you need water? And I was just like, no. Like I, it was like an out of body experience almost because it was like, someone just told me that my son might lose his leg and I have
2: no clue how to process this. Who does, who would. And, and so then what That he, he goes
0: into surgery.
2: He goes into surgery. He, they put pins in
1: his legs. Um, and it was one of those really nasty looking pins where it was like the metal sticking out of the leg to like hold the leg together and they they get him in surgery and the surgeon comes out and he said okay we we did everything we could we tried to get the arteries and the veins put back together um but we don't know if that blood flow is going to return so we have to wait a few days to see if it's going to return um i think he knew that the likelihood of it was extremely low um, there were other surgeons who were like, just hold on to hope, like, because miracles happen. Right. Sure. And, um, so I held on to hope. I was like, okay, this blood flow is going to return. It's going to return. And, um, every, from the time he got us out of surgery, every 60 minutes on every hour on the dot, they would check for a pulse on the bottom of his foot. And I just remember every 60 minutes, cause I had never left his side for, Pretty much I would go to the bathroom or I would take a quick shower, but I would come back. I'd be gone for maybe one hour a day out of 24 hours. And um, so 24 times, basically, I would listen and pray for to hear that pulse. And um, it never came and his foot turned black and blue. And that's when they made a decision. We have to amputate it or else it's going to get worse. It's just going to keep climbing up his leg and he's
2: going to lose his whole leg.
0: And how was Hunter during this time frame?
2: Pretty sedated. Okay. He was in a lot of pain. So he was, um,
1: he slept a lot. There was no preparing him because he was semi-sedated. They could only give him so many pain meds because I guess what the pain meds do. And one thing I forgot to mention too is with young adolescent bodies, is their veins and arteries, they have this elasticity to them um, for protective purposes. And so what happens if they get damaged, they close off. And so He didn't bleed out. So his life was saved because of how his body was, because of how little it was. But that's what caused him to lose his leg. Of course, that was the better option um, and the better outcome. But they couldn't give him a lot of pain meds because I guess pain meds mess with blood flow. And they had to give him enough stuff to try and push blood flow as much as they could. So he was in a lot of pain. So they try to keep him as sedated as possible. Not a, not a coma per se, but definitely um, just sleeping a lot and not
2: fully aware.
0: And how is Michael during this time?
2: Um, Michael. So when I first saw him, um, I mean, he, like I said, he was really calm and
1: just very much like i got to take charge because like my son's life he's going into shock like i need to treat this almost like a situation at work and so he was very calm but then the second that the paramedics got there and then got him to the airport and it was like okay let those professionals take over and then i got there was when i feel like he was finally able to let a little bit of his guard down and i just remember him coming to the truck when i pulled up to the airport and the first words he said to me, it's all my fault. It's all my fault. And there was so much guilt and so much um just pain and heartbreak and devastation that he experienced much more than I did, because not only did he have that
2: guilt on his shoulders, but he also had his career. Um he, he didn't know what was gonna happen with his career. And so
1: he definitely put on a brave face. He is just a very strong person and he doesn't like to show emotions almost ever. I feel like he's gotten better at that as now we have three children and we're trying to teach them to be like, emotions are okay. It's okay to feel things. And so as I teach them and, you know, help Michael to know that, um, and I feel like it's almost like a generational thing and it's kind of a cop thing too. But so he just put on a brave face, so many people from his department, and the police department and the fire department came and supported him and just showered Hunter with way too many toys, way too many gift cards, and that really helped to support us and uplift us. And for Michael to just have those people visiting him really
2: helped him.
0: What was it about the situation that made him um? or created some concern over his career?
1: Um, because, so the dog was out without his supervision. Uh, um, that's like a huge, like if that, if the dog isn't contained, then the handler needs to be 100% with that dog. Yeah.
2: I see. I see. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: And it, I feel like at first it was more uh, embarrassment and, He just felt humiliated. He's like, how could I let this happen? How could I make such a stupid mistake? And so I think it was more humiliation um, opposed to, you know, wondering about his job. But then, you know, they had they had to turn it into um, what's it called? They had to investigate it. So we had to have the officers come over and to our house and interview Michael and basically investigate the whole incident.
0: Man, you talk about how your life can change on a dime. Oh, gosh. In every way. I mean, I can't even imagine dealing with what you're already dealing with. Mm -hmm. And then the secondary piece of that as well. Yeah.
1: And and I think, too, one of the huge things that I feel like Michael dealt with that I was very, I don't know why I just didn't have any desire to go to this space. But um, the media was totally, there was, um, the news vans were in our neighborhood for days trying to get like as many interviews as possible. Luckily we were in the hospital. They were, they showed up at the hospital waiting for anybody to come out for them to talk to. And then of course these videos are being posted. And of course people are attacking us and saying that we're negligent parents and Michael should go to jail. And I just stayed away from it. I didn't look at it until about a year later. Um, but for some reason Michael was I'm like why are you 14 yourself like that but um I don't know
2: I don't everyone's different when it comes to their curiosity and what they want to know but that was a whole other element that was just horrific
0: yeah it's you, you hopefully more people learn this but it's easy to cast judgment from another side when you don't sure. really know the whole story and you're not there but my son who's now 29 in the marine corps but when he he was little and born he was just a a busy, busy kid. And he did things that, you know, later I thought back on judgments that I had made on other parents thinking, (laughs) right. Oh, come on. You must be negligent. And, uh, you know, and living in Phoenix too, with drownings and, you know, so many different things that go on with a lot of that. I really learned to let go of any judgment because you don't know what you don't know, even if you think, you know, so. That was such a
1: good lesson. I felt like after this, whenever I heard of accidents in the news or anything, I just, my heart would just go out to them. And it made it so much easier to be like, oh gosh, like we were, we've been there. And it, that's one thing that I'm grateful to have learned from this is to just make it easier to not cast judgment because you just don't know. And even if it was, you know. Just that parents, you know, we always want to cast blame, right? And there's just so many things that happen. It's like just have some compassion and have some empathy on that parent because it could happen to anybody,
0: right? Well, even even Michael leaving the dog out. I mean, in a split decision, it's. I think it's easy for all of us to get complacent. I don't know that that's the right word, but with so many things, when there's a routine and we're, you know, over a year the dog had been there, just so many things like that where you quickly make that decision and assume everything's going to be fine. And, you know, as, as God would have it, faith would, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. things happen. So it's so important to, to bear that in mind. So um, then walk us down a little bit further. Once the amputation's done, Hunter's out of surgery and into recovery, how did he handle that? How did he deal with the challenges and the future that he was facing? And at four and a half, what can you possibly know?
1: Right. Um, he, he did not handle it well. He, it was very difficult for him to process. He just wanted his leg back um, and he would ask for it. And he, you know, can we go out in the backyard? Is it at the hospital? Like for his, to wrap his mind around it was impossible for him. And it took months, I think, for him mentally to finally be like, my leg is never coming back. And it took even more months than that for him to accept his prosthetic leg, which was a whole new life for him and a whole new life for us. Because now here we had this kid who couldn't walk, and but here was this tool that could help him walk and this aid, this mobility aid, but he didn't want to accept it. And that was very, very difficult times for us because we were trying everything we could to encourage him and to motivate him. But there was, all we could do was love him through it because he had to come to terms on his own. And then it was finally eight months later when he finally took his first step. And then I feel like after that, he kind of took off. That was a little bit after five. And then He went through kindergarten, did kindergarten one more time because he was recovering his first year of kindergarten. And then he hit first grade. And that's when I feel like he started to really realize, oh, man, I'm like really different. (laughs) Like, I'm the only kid wearing this weird leg. And um, I don't think he's had any major issues with being bullied. But even then, you know, kids would question or look and stare. And of course, he notices that. And the, it's very innocent, and we don't blame kids at all for reacting like that. Um, but he did start to really feel different, and that's when he was also diagnosed with bilateral moderately severe hearing loss. So then, we, so then we put two hearing aids on him, and that was like when it all went downhill, because he would wear a hood to school every day, and he would wear pants every day, and he just didn't want anybody to know that he had a difference about him. And that's when we made the decision to put him in therapy so that way he could learn to really communicate and just have someone else telling him that
2: it's okay to be different and here's are the tools that you can use so that way you can um, process that and get through it. Wow, was the hearing loss part of the accident? We thought that it was,
1: but we don't think so. (laughs) It's, hearing
2: loss is like,
1: so ambiguous like you don't you can never really get like a for sure diagnosis and one unless you want to spend like thousands of dollars on like genetic testing um and unless you have like a for sure diagnosis of like something is happening like physically or anatomically you just know okay it's probably genetic but he got his hearing tested at like six years old and it was perfect according to this audiologist it wasn't just like the beeping um uh-huh. that you get done at school it was like in a sound booth professionally trained audiologist it was perfect hearing go back a year later and it dropped it was a lot of it was gone so we um so looking back and putting all the puzzle pieces together we don't think it's related but there's like honestly um, we'll probably never know
0: and I know you're a very strong woman and family of faith. So let's talk a little bit about that. The the role that your faith has played in recovery and then, you know, just handling grief and trauma.
2: Yeah. Um, I've had to do like a lot of soul searching when it comes to that, because
1: I've never been I've never been one to feel like why, like. Why would God let something so bad happen? Because we come to earth and there's no way we can live lives escaping trials or pain or grief. And so it's built into the plan. I,
2: I fully understand that and I fully trust that. Um I just think that when
1: <clears throat> I I did have some big moments because I did feel like I I was praying so hard for Hunter to not lose his leg. And I had so much faith. And I just felt like God is going to grant us this miracle
2: because of how much faith I have. And so many people are praying. So this
1: has to happen. This miracle has to happen for us. And and I think one of the big things too was that we had had lost a baby um, just a few years before that. And I just remember the pain I felt from that. And I remember praying and just pleading with God to never let me go through that much pain again, because it was just so much heartbreak. And um, it was very clear to my mind um, while I was praying and pleading with God. And I just remember feeling this feeling of you just need to have faith. And when I felt that, I was like, no, (laughs) I know what that means. That means that something else could possibly happen. And I'm going to need to have this much faith again. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to have to like try and test my faith again. And so when a hundred thing happened, I just remember being there at night and just praying and praying and going back to that moment in my life when I was told to have faith. And I just felt like, okay, this is it. Like, this is the moment. And I just have to have faith that we're going to be okay. And that we're going to be able to learn how to be happy again. And that that we're just going to make the best of it. And that we're not going to live bitter lives because
2: of this accident and because of this life-changing event
0: how was Michael with this? Because, you know, we hear all the time that something like this, that challenges you so much, very often rips a marriage apart, like mm-hmm. very, very, it's not uncommon. I think, in fact, I think it's more common that a marriage disintegrates when something like this happens. So tell us about how all of that came together, Michael's faith and how you, the, the two of you worked as a team.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm so grateful to have him as my husband because we really did lean on each other. And I think like in the moment, what really helped him because he saw the damage of the leg, like right away, he had this, either it was an impression or just realizing how bad the leg was. He automatically felt like my son's going to lose his leg. And he kind of was like, that's going to happen. I see how bad it is. There's no way this kid's going to keep his leg. And so for me, it was very different because I got to Hunter, you know, when he was already, you know, bandaged up and everything. And, and in my mind, I was like, no, there's no way that's going to happen. And so he, I felt like for those three days, as they were checking the pulse and stuff like that was just kind of waiting for the inevitable. And I was on the plane of, no, I'm going to have faith and I'm going to pray for a miracle and we're going to get this miracle. So the morning of the amputation, I just remember he slept at a different, he slept actually at the Ronald McDonald house. That is a real place. So whenever you drive through McDonald's and they say, do you want to donate to the Ronald McDonald's house? It is a real place and they help so many families. They helped us for the total. Of days, they uh, we stayed there. Michael slept there, and I slept at the hospital. So, anyways, he came and um, and I just cried to him, and I said, "How how could this happen? How could Heavenly Father let this happen to our son?" And and he was just like, he was so calm, and there was such peace about him. And he said, "You know, Heavenly Father protected him, and it could have been so much worse. It could have the dog could have bit." his core and damaged all his organs um he could have possibly bled out he could have bit even higher on the leg and he would have had to lease move his leg and there were so many we just kind of went through these different scenarios that would have possibly been fatal for one and um and he just talked with me and that's when i knew that heavenly father was going to protect him and that he was going to bless him with the strength and the tools that he needed. And he was going to bless Michael and I his parents to support him through this. And I have felt that strength. Sometimes I was not that strong. Sometimes there were times when he was really struggling and I had moments of weakness where I just prayed and said, I can't do this anymore. I can't. I'm not strong enough to be Hunter's mom. There were times when I just cried and cried and just felt like I am not cut out for this. And, um, but then something would happen where I felt like, what was he thinking? Like, I am being sustained, I am being strengthened, and I, I can do this. Um, so, and as for our marriage, I mean, it's one thing when, um, and I know that when children are sick or going through things, it, it can be hard on a marriage, but we had it, something that we went through where Michael was going through something, some health issues, and I felt like, man, I have to support him and I don't have my partner with me because he's my partner and he's the one that needs to be supported. And it was such a difference of when we were supporting Hunter together. And um, he just kind of let me take the reins of taking him to camps and, you know, and then creating this platform on social media. And he's been so supportive of that. And, Somehow we've just made it through and we haven't always agreed on things. I feel like he's been harder on him with physical therapy or like pushing him to walk faster than what he wants to do. But uh, we've just been able to make it through. So
0: So then walk us through, um, obviously, as you already shared, Hunter went through the the phase of being in denial and Mm non-accepting and then went through being different. Mm -hmm. and kind of hiding that and and some additional challenges with this hearing loss. So what was it that made the shift for him? Because today, you know, through social media, through your platform, the book that you're writing, you know, all of those things, he's turned into such an inspiration and is joyful and hopeful and is really about embracing his own community, as well as enlightening others as to what it's like to be part of that community and, and really bringing all that together. So what What created that shift? I think it was
1: um, the first thing that comes to mind is the community, is having these people that he looks up to and also exposing him to the community as much as possible, taking him to camps. Um, We connected with No Barriers, which is a community of all disabilities, um, and that We, um, Eric Weinmeier is the co-founder of that. He's the first blind man to summit Mount Everest. We actually talk about him a lot because he's like one of our heroes. He started no barriers and, um, they just have such an attitude of their motto is what's within you is stronger than what's in your way. And I feel like it's just all these seeds we have planted throughout the years of, Hey, yes, you're different. Yes. This can be a struggle sometimes. Yes. Sometimes this sucks. But look at what your life is, and you're happy, and you're choosing to be happy. And look at all these amazing people. You know, we um, are really close with this one Paralympian who is also an amputee. He's on the slide hockey team, which is actually going to be coming. They're um, they are undefeated the past three years, so they're going to be competing here in the next week. And so we're really rooting for them um, because they've been undefeated. And I'm like, they got to win this year. So, anyways he's a huge inspiration to Hunter. Hunter just has all these people in place where whenever he's having a bad day, I tell him like, think about Jack, think about Eric, think about these people. They've all been there and I'm sure they have hard days too. And I just feel like, like I said, all these seeds have gotten him to where he is today. And then as we started making videos, it's really funny because he doesn't read the comments. He doesn't even care and he's never like, hey, how many likes do we have on there? Which I'm so grateful for. He's not obsessive over it. That, that's a huge problem in teens and preteens today. You know, they want to see how many friends I have, how many likes. And I sometimes will read him things and say, hey, this mom reached out to me. Her son just lost her leg. And he's been watching your videos. And he is now motivated to want to get up and walk again. And Hunter knows that. He knows wow these kids are watching me we'll go to camps and sometimes they'll be like hey is that hunter from the internet and so they know and so he's kind of he the people that he's looked up to now he's coming into that spot and i think he just knows like you know this could help someone and it's all and i think that's really what's brought him to where he is today
0: now you have a performance background yourself. So is that, do you think that that's what led you to, um, walk us through the thought process of, Hey, I've got a platform here that I can use to help and inspire other people. And social media can be a part of it and videos walk us through how all that came together.
1: So that actually came together because I, I wrote our story as a memoir. I first wrote it because I want my family to have all the details, even the nitty gritty details, but all the details of how I felt and how, and of my faith and all of my feelings of, Hey, this was what was going on at this time in our lives. And this was how I felt about it. And so I wrote a a full length memoir and I tried to, after I wrote the memoir, I started researching on how I could get it published. Um, and that's when the the big red sign was platform 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 and I'm like oh my gosh I don't really want a platform like we were already out in media when this first happened and then so many things just came about and it was like you know this is my chance to tell our story so many news reporters who could care less about our story were reporting on this and so many people were commenting this is my chance and I can be in control of it and so um that's when we started. And it was kind of like a rough start. Like, what do I do? What do people even care about? What do people want to know? And then our first video goes viral, which is of Hunter walking on Legos. And I was like, oh my gosh, people just, they want to laugh. And they also want to see that someone with a disability can totally find humor in it. And that's where it just really took off. And once we hit like 2000 followers, I was like, people are listening. They're listening. Like 2,000 is like nothing, kind of in like the big scheme of things. But that's when I was like, okay, people want to know. They want to be educated. They want, to, and they 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 get it. They're getting this. And um so that's kind of where it really took off from there. We've been working on the platforms um for about this June will be two years. So I started um June. What year is it? June of 2020? Yes, the pandemic, right?
0: What else was there to do, right?
2: Oh <laughs> yeah,
1: and we tried different things. We tried like Q and A's and all that stuff, and I was like, okay, that's not sticking, but this is. And um, and then then I started researching the um, the children's realm for children's books, and I saw that only three point five percent of published children's books have a disabled character, and that really bothered me. is nothing, especially when disability is the largest minority in the world. And that's when I was like, I got stories, I can do this. And so I came up with a story and went through a long editing process and critique groups. And now that first book is going to be published on July 5th um, of this year.
2: Congratulations. That's very exciting.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited.
2: I will bet. Yeah,
0: that's, you know, it's just the start of many, I'm sure. Yeah. So what was it that led Michael then to pursue aviation and leave law enforcement? What happened? Was this part of it was aviation something he always wanted? Yeah, so when he was a
1: teenager, he did love aviation and he toyed around with the idea um with wanting to go into aviation, um but it was very much like he was young and was like, "Let me like kind of play, like entertain a lot of different ideas. It wasn't like, like I was, um, I feel like I've always been like a creative type always with whether it's music or songwriting. And I always knew like, whatever I do in my life, I want it to be creative. And Michael, I feel like could be good at just, he was thinking of going to like to the medical field. And then he did a law enforcement, but right before he went into law enforcement, he broke his knee and knees just for some reason, they just don't do well, even if you get it fixed. And so he was on the SWAT team um, and he was also on the gang team. So just very active in his police work and just wore that knee down more and more and more. And so in 2017, the year we had our, our third and final baby, he went to get surgery on it to see if they could clean it up. And we were thinking it'd be this very simple process. Just kind of clean it up and he should be back on his feet a few weeks. So the surgeon calls me and he said, "Um, It is a lot worse than we think. He can't walk for six weeks and I'm like fully pregnant at this point. Long story short, he ends up having more meetings with the surgeon and he said, You need to get out of this career because it's physically, it's too physically demanding and you're just going to tear up your knee and you're going to be in pain for the rest of your life. He is still in pain, but I'm sure it would be much worse if he stayed with that physically demanding job. And so shortly after that, he, um, we have a really good friend who flies for Alaskan airlines and they went to a baseball game together. And Michael's like, yeah, this is what the surgeon told me. And he's like, Michael, retire and go to aviation. He's like, you're crazy. You are crazy. And then he told him all about it. It was just like, this is what you have to do. These are the steps to get there. They're, they're coming up on a really big, um, you probably have didn't have a better term for it, but basically they're gonna have a tons a shortage. <laughs> yes, a huge shortage. They're gonna be like in a pilot drought here really soon. Yeah. Like it's the perfect time. And um, we did get scared when the pandemic hit, but things are picking back up. Things are totally picking back up. And so after a lot of prayer and everything, he's like, All right, I'm gonna retire, medically retire from law enforcement. And he, he went to um flight school in Long Beach. He lived with my mom who lives in Huntington, Monday through Friday. And I lived with his parents because for, um, just so we weren't alone and he would come home on the weekends and it took him about a year and three months to finish school. And right away, he started working, like I said, for AeroGuard in Arizona. And then, um, yeah. And now, so now he's managing the flight school and working on his hours, but it's so weird. Aviation is just really interesting because There's a lot of different routes you can go. You don't have to go with the airlines. He's looking into going FAA, or he could possibly work his way up in this company that's doing flight schools and keep managing the flight school and possibly manage more flight schools. So we don't know what we're going to do at this point. We're in that weird in-between stage um, of pilot life of like, where what should we do? And um, we're kind of hoping that they're going to lower that hour, that minimum hour. We're, we heard that they're kind of fighting for that because managing a school and also getting in, in hours is really tough because yeah. he's trying to manage all the students, and inspectors, and also get in fly time.
2: So, yeah. Yeah, that's a, it, it is, it's a catch-22 for sure, yeah.
0: for sure. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Hunter's future then in terms of, um, uh, you know, has he, I mean, at 10, I believe he's 10 he's now, Eleven now. Uh-huh. I mean, it, that's a little young, but at the same time, there's so much opportunity through what he's doing. Is he has he identified anything that he sees for his future? Yeah. Well,
1: his dream right now is to um, be a marine biologist. He loves he loves um, the ocean. He loves the beach. There's actually an amputee who lives in Hawaii who takes pictures of sharks, and his leg was actually bit off by a shark and we follow him and he's like a big inspiration to Hunter, but he, um, so he loves the ocean. He loves the beach. And, um, so that's what he wants to do. And I'm like, I, I honestly don't know very much about those careers. And so as for like nearer future, he wants to work at Barnes and Noble cause he loves to read and he loves books. And so he wants to volunteer at the library so that way he can be prepared to work at Barnes and Noble. And, um, he, you know, he does these videos and he loves being a part of the community and going to camp. Um, and he's, he's a very competitive swimmer right now. And people are always asking like, Oh, does he want to go to the Paralympic? And he, I feel like whenever people ask him that he's like, so like, I don't know, like, am I ever going to be that good? It's not like a dream of his, but I think it's more like, man, those people are so fast. Like, will I ever be at that level? But he's never like, oh, I don't want to go. Um, he competes against non-disabled people right now. And he does barely, he keeps up with them. And so he's doing really well with that. He trains um, four days a week. So he's at the pool four day, days a week right now. And he does, um, he'll compete both with adaptive sports. So people who are disabled. And like I said, with non-disabled people.
0: How oh, has his, his- fame, if you will, and his story and all of his activities and everything that goes into that, how has that affected your two other children and your family in general? Like, how do you create some balance with all that? Yeah, that is tough, especially
1: for my middle ones. My youngest is only four, so he doesn't get it. Um, you know, he will at some point, but we really try. And especially my middle one, now that he's, um, he now does sports himself, And I think that's like really leveled the playing field of like you're in your sport and we put tons of time and energy into that. But, you know, like Hunter gets fan mail and that's um, Cade sometimes is like, well, I want fan mail. And I was like, this is he has to come to his own terms of acceptance of like, this is Hunter's life. And I would think that's the case with any family that has a sibling, whether they're a celebrity or has an illness or a disease or any disability, because they're going to require a very different amount of attention. And so we always try to explain that to Cade. And like, but sometimes it is like a little silly because, oh gosh, I I can't think of something off the top of my head, but he'll say, well, that's not fair. And I'm like, Hunter gets to do that because he's missing his leg that is why he's doing it. And it's kind of simpler things of like, Hey, we got to go to Galveston to meet with surgeon. Well, I want to go. I'm sorry. You can't go like it's, this is just for Hunter. And so um, he's only eight. So he's gonna, he's going to come into his own. Um, But we definitely really try and make time of like, Cade, this is going to be your special thing. This is Hunter's special thing. This is Logan's special team. So we'll take Cade out on date himself and Michael and Cade have like this really strong baseball bond. So that's perfect for them. And Hunter and Michael don't have a baseball bond. So he's going to see that. That's just how it is.
0: Got it. And how about your identity? Obviously you're quite busy with a lot of your own stuff too, that is tied to what's going on with Hunter, but how do you keep your identity in terms of pilot husband, which can be challenging sometimes and your son in the spotlight and two other kids and all that.
1: Yeah, I, I really feel like I was blessed with a very good sense of who I am. And, um, I, I appreciate my talent so much. And with this writing journey, you know, this first book that's coming out in July, um, that is, that is my book. And it's funny because I kind of call it, sometimes I'll call it our book because it's about Hunter. This book never would have came to pass if it wasn't for him but it was my story and my writing and my craft. And, you know, I just created my author page on Amazon and it's my biography. And I'm so, so proud of that. I've worked so hard and yeah, it's, it's not an issue of feeling like, you know, everyone can bring something to the plate and the more you can embrace who you are, I feel like the more you can offer, because you understand your talents and you understand the gifts that you can add to your family. Um, Our next book, we are already working on it is one that Hunter and I are doing. And even then I feel very much a a partnership with him. And that one is actually about the people that we have met and um, discovered in this community. So it's a nonfiction and it's, it's an anthology of many biographies, and so like Eric Wynarys is in there, and actually that surfer who I was just talking about, and so Hunter, I teach him to research the people and be like, hey, what do we need to include in their biography? What quotes do you like of them and stuff? And so, yeah, just a little plug for that one.
0: <laughs> no, I love it. I'm so I'm so happy you said that. And you know, it's you're such a classic example of you know making lemonade out of lemons. And I don't mean to say that to in any way minimize. Mm-hmm. What you've gone through, what you're still going through, um, so, what are your ultimate hopes and goals through this journey that you're on, and that you've obviously taken the time to embrace? And again, these are words that one wouldn't normally put with a, a such a traumatic experience. But what mm-hmm. else are you going to do with it, right? You can let it sink you or you can swim and thrive. Right. And it certainly seems like you've done that. So tell us some of your hopes and goals through it,
1: and. I would say, like, really big picture, it would be amazing to just keep writing, and keep putting books out there and keep spreading awareness. Um, Of course, it would be incredible to get a big publisher, because if we get a big publisher, that means that book will be known to more people. And so I have a wonderful small press who believes in me right now. And um, she's working so hard and I'm hustling to get the word out and we have a launch team and everything. Um, but big publishers, you know, they just have these whole departments for marketing and I'm happy with what I'm doing right now because it's learning blocks and I feel like it's just going to grow. I don't have any regrets of the, um, the route that I'm taking right now and the options that I ended up deciding to do. But we just want to keep spreading awareness. And actually, I'm, I'm about to post a video here. Um, I, I made it say there was a little boy in our house and he saw a book on my shelf that it was of a little boy who didn't have a leg. And he said, oh, that's scary. I was like, no, it's just different. And those comments don't, I don't take any offense to them. And they're not shocking at all anymore. They were very difficult to deal with at first. That was really hard to handle the stairs. And the parents hushing their children, all that stuff at first, because it was such a new role to us. Like, oh my gosh, my child is the one that like other kids are staring at. Like you never expect to have that. But, um, but I had to like really explain to him, like, no, this is not scary. They are just different. And it just made me realize children need to be exposed more. People in general need to be exposed more, but children need to be exposed more so they don't see that kid in a wheelchair or that kid without the leg or the kid missing the eye, whatever it is, and be scared of them. Because those children, they want to be loved and they want that connection and they want to be accepted. And that is just my main goal and my mission to just disability visibility is so important and I just want to be the best ally that I can. I, I don't have a disability. I'm just very close and adjacent to
2: it, but I just want to be able to support that community the best that I can. Awesome. Any final thoughts you want to leave us with? I don't think so. Um, no, I don't think so. I think you, the questions were great and able to share. And um, I think a little
1: more on the pilot wife life. It's It's such a exciting and almost like a little bit daunting and a weird spot to be in of like so many directions to go. And I think for any of the pilot wives listening out there, like being in this spot of like, okay, do we want to go to the airlines? And some people are like, yes, let's go to the airlines. That's it. And then you get into, (laughs) yeah and then you get into aviation and you're like, oh, there's like a lot of, a lot more options out there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's exciting to see what doors it's opened up. And it's, we're in the weird in-between stage and I can't wait till we can one day settle somewhere, but we'll just take it as it comes for now.
0: Well, I always say life in aviation is life in limbo. So yeah. <laughs> right. but it's fun. And it's, it's kind of like what you've already learned to do. And that's embracing the journey and making the most of it and finding the good and the silver lining and clouds and all that type thing. So you're certainly well-versed at that. So you'll do extremely well. And I appreciate so much what you've shared because, you know, um, disabilities among people aren't limited to certain professions or whatever. And so I know that there are a lot of other moms and dads too out there who will hear this and who will find faith and encouragement in dealing with their own situation with children, uh, special needs children. I, I think you even said, um, I don't remember the exact quote, but it's like the um, what did you say? Disability is the number one uh, minority minority world. out there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that really struck me when you said that. I thought, wow, I'd never really thought about it that way. And so it's good to bring awareness to that and to, you know, allow all of us to realize we're all just different. Mm-hmm. We're all just different in, in a lot of different ways. And that's what makes us unique and special. Mm-hmm. So I love that how do we find you how do we find you and hunter
1: so um, our instagram is at mass taylor party 5 and then my website um, i my website is just my name roselymastaylor.com and on my website you can find so many things so many resources i have one of the largest databases of books that feature disabled character And so if you want to educate yourself or want to buy something for your child or even read something for yourself, go on that database and it's all categorized by genre. So if you want to read a memoir or a fiction book or your child is in middle grade and you want them to want to get them a book, you can search through that. And I have links for every single book of summaries. Um, I also have a book club where we bring in authors who have a disability. That one is coming up soon. Um, The Paralympian Lex Gillette Who is a blind long jumper is going to be at the virtual book club. And so I have that information on there and also resources, mainly for amputees. And um, I also have Disability Pride Month resources, which is in July, which we are encouraging everybody to celebrate and also get their libraries and independent bookstores to celebrate because it is not known enough. And so I have a whole proposal that you could send to libraries and be like, hey, I want Disability Pride Month celebrated at my library. So my website is a whole array of things. And um, I just want to get more people to see it so I can spread more awareness.
0: Awesome. And I'll link all that in the show notes so that people can find it. Well, Rosalie, thank you so much for being here. Um, thank you for sharing your journey. Thank you for being an inspiration. Um, and, you know, thank you for painting a picture of the hope that's possible despite one of the greatest challenges ever. And that is, you know, first of all, facing the near death of a child and then, um, you know, the, the trauma with that child and, and showing all of us how to turn adversity into your greatest strengths.
1: Oh, thank you. I'm, I think if that's what I could share the most is that, there's, I always tell people there's always room for hope. There's just always room for hope no matter what happens. And, and there's always a chance to find joy. So. Thank you for saying that.
0: If you like what you're hearing on the show, grab the Pilot Wife Checklist at pilotwifechecklist.com. And if you have a topic suggestion or a story to share on the show, go to ask.pilotwifepodcast.com. Share the show with any pilot wives, military wives, or anyone in aviation you know who might share and benefit from this similar experience. I'll see you on the journey.